Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As bizarre as it seems, for the world's greatest nation, results from the midterm elections that happened two weeks ago continue to trickle in as widely expected. Democrats retain control of the Senate and Republicans have retaken the House. Republicans are in the process of holding their leadership elections with Mitch McConnell uh, to continue as the majority leader in the upper house and Kevin McCarthy expected to become the 53rd House Speaker, although he has competition for the job. Uh, Democrats are expected to retain Chuck Schumer as Senate Majority Leader as the first and longest serving Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, uh, in a powerful address said that she would step down from leadership to clear the way for a new generation uh, of talent uh, to take some of these top Democratic uh, positions. Uh, The National Defense Authorization Act and appropriations processes continue to grind through as lawmakers scramble to complete legislation before the dawn of split party control uh, of uh, Congress. And whether to authorize more aid to Ukraine, President Biden announced another $37 billion in assistance uh, to Kiev, backed by billions in additional assistance from NATO and partner nations, as two missiles killed two farmers four miles inside Poland. Polish officials say the weapons were air defense missiles uh, fired by Ukraine to intercept a massive Russian missile barrage uh, targeting Ukraine's power, water and heating and energy grids. Uh, This as former President Trump uh, announced that he is going to run again, an announcement greeted coolly by none other than his uh, very own New York Post uh, that wrote, Florida man makes announcement and posted the story on page 26. Biden met with Xi Jinping at the G20 summit where the two leaders toned down the heat and the rhetoric and pledged to cooperate where possible, including on climate. That said, President Biden also met with leaders uh, from across Asia to bring them together to better stand up to China's increasingly assertive regional posture. As we record this program, we are heading to the annual Halifax International Security Forum uh, in Nova Scotia, Canada, one of the world's truly great uh, military, diplomatic, uh, and economic uh, gatherings. Uh, So we are breaking the program up into parts. First, before we head to Dulles Airport for the flight uh, to the home of the Royal Canadian Navy's Atlantic Fleet, Uh, Joining us will be Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms. Michael, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be back. Uh, An absolute pleasure uh, having you on the program. It's always great having everybody together, but this is the best we can do under the uh, circumstances. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran, and Leonardo DRS and General Atomics are sponsoring our coverage uh, of uh, the Halifax Forum. And check out our two weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Again, Michael, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Um, in- enormous amount that's going on, so let's start with the leadership outcome. Uh, we are pretty much exactly where we thought we would be in terms of uh, where the Senate ended up and where the House ended up. Obviously, all eyes are on the December 6th uh, runoff between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Uh, leadership uh, elections are playing out as well. Uh, Mitch McConnell uh, looking like he's going to be remaining Senate minority uh, leader, uh, while Kevin McCarthy uh, at least passed the first screening uh, vote uh, this week uh, to become the next uh, speaker. Uh, current Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, and Majority Leader Steny Hoyer are both going to step down from uh, leadership. Uh, to make room for new leadership, and obviously a race uh, will be on. Jim Clyburn uh, is going to stay on in a leadership capacity, but there is an expectation Hakeem Jeffries uh, may uh, make history as being um, the first African-American to be uh, a uh, minority uh, leader. Walk us through what we know today that we didn't know a week ago, um, that we didn't know the Tuesday before that, in some respect. (laughs) Well, we know now that the Republicans control the House of Representatives, which we did not know last week, uh, because Wednesday night, 
enough races were called uh, to secure the Republican majority. Right now, it's still going to be very slim. It looks like a four or five seat majority uh, for the Republicans, five seats at best. Uh, some are saying 221 to 214. Others think it could be 222 to 213. And that's you know, significant for a lot of reasons. I mean, if you take a look at the last Congress, there were 16 members of Congress who either died, resigned, or were indicted in the last Congress. So if you're looking at a majority as small as four seats, uh, control could possibly change during that Congress. And the Republicans have said they're going to get rid of proxy voting. So uh, that means that their folks have to be here to cast the votes, unlike things uh, were under the Democratic control. So uh, getting things done over the next two years is, is going to be a challenge. Now, you're correct. They did have their leadership elections. Uh, Speaker, uh, not Speaker, uh, Leader McCarthy uh, did have a challenge from Andy Biggs uh, from the Freedom Caucus. Uh, no one expected any bigs to win. McCarthy did win uh, 188 to 31. So 31 of his colleagues voted against him. Now, if you take a look back in history, Paul Ryan, who was speaker initially in the conference vote, had 43 votes against him. And Pelosi, last time uh, when the Republican Democrats took control of the House, she had 32 votes against her. So even though right. McCarthy had a lot of votes against him, he still has until January 3rd to secure 218. Uh, uh, Skeev Scalise was, re uh, was elected majority leader unopposed. The real race was for whip. And we talked about that last week uh, between right. Tom Emmer, who chaired the NRCC, Jim Banks, who was on the Armed Services Committee, and, and Drew Ferguson. Uh, and Tom Emmer uh, actually won the RIPS race, which was a surprise to a lot of folks. Right. They, uh, thought, you, they uh, thought Banks had this, uh, had a lock on that. Well, Banks had uh, a lot of backing from uh, the Trump folks. And, uh, you know, and actually did win on the first ballot. Uh, but uh, but the second ballot went between Emmer and Banks and Emmer secured enough support uh, to, to win to be the whip. Um, so, you know, and that, and now at least Stefanik won re-election to uh, conference chair uh, and Mike Johnson won re-election to vice chair. And I mentioned those folks and Lisa McLean won her race to be the conference secretary. And I mentioned them because Lisa McLean, Mike Johnson and Elise Stefanik are all on armed services. And for the first time, we'll have three folks uh, uh, three defense folks at the elected leadership table, which is really going to be important going forward as defense spending uh, becomes a big issue. Um, now, the real issue, real um, all eyes right now are on the Democrats uh, after today with Pelosi making her announcement that she is now no longer going to uh, run for leadership next year. And there should be a, a, a new team. Right. So everybody expects Hakeem Jeffries to be the leader. Uh, Adam Schiff, who was looking at running for leader. Uh, announced earlier that he was not going to run. So Hakeem Jeffries will go unchallenged now that Sonny Hoyer has announced that he will not seek uh, a leadership position next year. Um, Catherine Clark will be the whip, most likely, uh, and she's on the Appropriations Committee. And then Pete Aguilar uh, will be the uh, caucus chairman. And Pete is on the Defense Appropriations Committee, uh, which is, I think, very good for our industry to have him there. And if you take a look at them, I mean, I, I, I work very closely and like Hakeem Jeffries and Catherine Clark a lot. But, you know, the uh, vote we talked about many months ago uh, when NDAA was on the floor, there was an amendment to cut defense spending by $100 billion. Uh, both Hakeem Jeffries and Catherine Clark, I believe, voted in favor of that. Right. And Pete Aguilar uh, voted against. So uh, defense spending will be an issue on both sides. And really briefly uh, on the Senate side, uh, right, uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, re-elected is going to be majority leader, or or looks like he's going to be elected majority leader. They, the Democrats haven't had their elections yet, uh, and uh, Mitch McConnell did be back uh, a drive by Rick Scott. I think um, some of uh, the Republican members, whether uh, Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, it's rather astonishing. Mitch McConnell has been trying to bring the party to its historic center, and it's interesting that the two guys who were the Trumpiest, who were election deniers are the ones who wanted to get rid of the guy. You know what I mean? It's, it's just bizarre why you would turn on Mitch McConnell and somehow blame him for the outcome of some of these races. I agree. And that's why I was very happy to see Mitch McConnell win. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I was surprised, frankly, to see even 10 senators vote against Mitch McConnell. But I think uh, we, the blame for losing those seats in the Senate really lies at the, president, uh, the former president's feet because he handpicked a lot of these candidates that McConnell said uh, were weak and right. endangered their chances of getting the Senate. So everything McConnell said uh, uh, is, is exactly what happened. And I also think that these attacks uh, McConnell and on his wife and these racist attacks on his wife from the former president are intolerable and that the Republicans in the Senate should be rallying around McConnell right now. 
Uh, so I'm glad to see that he's going to be staying uh, as leader. And then Schumer will have his leadership elections the week of December 8th. But let me just ask you uh, one thing. Nancy Pelosi made her uh, farewell uh, address. Uh, there are those who say that they didn't see uh, a lot of uh, Republican uh, leaders uh, in, in the uh, audience. Uh, but obviously it's a big hall and, and you might not have spotted every face on that. But sort of more broadly, as she was uh, stepping down to make room for a new generation, uh, the leadership put out a statement that we're going to be in, investigating Hunter Biden, investigating President uh, you know, Biden. Uh, and, um, you know, so what what does what do these data points tell us? Uh, right. I mean, not even applauding when you know she was saying this is the greatest body in the world. Uh, you know, I mean, that would have been a pretty easy get to have everybody in the room clapping. And, you know, there are people in the room who are obviously not even clapping at that. Um, you know, what does this tell us about what uh, the coming uh, couple of years are going to be like? Well, look, partisanship is, is going to remain and there's always going to be a group of outliers on, on both sides, uh, on the Democratic side and the Republican side, who are going to behave in a partisan fashion and are more concerned about their brand uh, than they are about governing. But I was very pleased to see that Steve Scalise, who's the new, will be the new majority leader, was in the chamber uh, for uh, Pelosi's address. Um, look, you know, with a, with a very slim majority and only controlling one house of Congress, I think we're going to see a lot of gridlock and not a lot uh, happening over the next two years outside of hopefully the basic functions of government. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of concern uh, about long-term CRs, uh, getting NDAA done. Uh, you know, how can we come to terms uh, each other to, to make the basic wheels of government turn? I'm definitely concerned about that, although I am happy to see that Pelosi, at least it appears that she's going to remain in Congress. And by remaining in Congress, she'll be there as a guiding hand uh, to her leadership because she knows how to govern. You know, I think her legacy will be a very strong one, a very good one. I mean, she was one of the most powerful speakers in history. She achieved things that really, I think most people really could not achieve. And I think this new team is going to need to be guided by her. Uh, and, you know, I think you know, she always was very concerned about governing and she was very um, supportive of a strong national defense. We may not have agreed on the numbers, but she's the one who made sure that an NDAA got passed every year and that a defense appropriations bill got passed every year. Uh, you know, she was on the intelligence committee before being speaker. She was the chair of the state and foreign ops uh, subcommittee. So she's well versed in the threats that we face and why America needs to be strong. So I give uh, Nancy Pelosi a great deal of credit. And, uh, you know, was a China hawk, uh, as, as many are now noticing. Uh, you know, it was funny that it took the Taiwan visit and people were like, oh, she's a China hawk. I mean, she was a China hawk before, um, you know, most, you know, b before that was even a concept for many people in in, in Washington, especially in her support uh, for Taiwan. Bring, bring us up to speed. You mentioned the NDAA appropriations. This is like, you know, repetitive stress disorder here. You know, give us an update on where we stand on these two pieces of legislation. Uh, any update on uh, what a CR looks like, right? I mean, you talked about prolonged CRs. Uh, ideally, we were going to do a short-term CR that was going to bridge us. We we're going to vote and and move on. But where, where are we on all this? So we're not in a good place. Uh, last week, I mentioned that the NDAA was supposed to be on the floor the week of December 5th. That is still the hope. But uh, all of a sudden, now that Republicans are securely in charge of the House going into next year, NDAA is in trouble. Uh, there is now a push from the far right wing of the party and the Freedom Caucus to insist that there is language inserted in the NDAA that will rescind the abortion memo uh, that Lloyd Austin put out prior to the election, which would allow service members who are stationed in places where abortion is illegal to be paid a tax for expense to go to states where they can get abortion, not only for them, but for their spouses and for their children. Um, so that one issue could possibly derail the entire NDAA. Uh, there is also a push to eliminate the vaccine mandate uh, and also to reinstate all the troops that were uh, <coughs> forced out of the military and also to give them back pay as well. Uh, so those are fights now that are happening behind the scenes and they have to figure out how to solve that or how to punt those in the next year uh, to get the NDAA done. Uh, there was a report earlier this week that, uh, that, that Kevin McCarthy is in favor of, of um, delaying the NDAA until next year to deal with these issues. But there's strong pushback not to do that because the Democrats are still going to control the Senate next year. Uh, so I'm not sure these issues get any easier. But um, there are alarm bells ringing. And Adam Smith you know, came out very strong yesterday, warning of serious consequences if the bill is delayed and the damage it will do to the U.S. military every day that we wait past October 1st. And he is, he is correct. What, what, what do Republicans want military members who need to get an abortion do? I mean, so what, what would they have happen here 
They uh, would like them to be able to go to other states at their own expense and not taxpayer expense. I see. I see. Um, and is that is that going to work? And how would that work then? Uh, nobody knows. This is this is all happening real time. And we are hoping that cooler heads prevail and a solution is reached very soon because Congress will be out of session next week. Then they have they're in uh, the week of the 28th and the bill is supposed to be on the floor the following week. Not to mention all the other things that need to be done uh, in this lame duck session, including uh, getting to a budget deal and passing an omnibus. Um, and, and that yeah, go ahead. And, and that is becoming and that is becoming much more complicated as well. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has announced that uh, she wants to also put a DACA patch onto the omnibus. And uh, you know, as you know, DACA you know provides relief from deportation uh, and work authorization for immigrants that were brought to America as children. And uh, you know, if if that is put on uh, the omnibus, I think you'd see a lot of Republicans voting against it. Not so sure it would be able to pass. That's if we were able to get that far. Uh, right. And the same thing with the debt ceiling. If it will debt ceiling be part of the omnibus or not? Nancy Pelosi actually would like to do another reconciliation package to get the debt ceiling passed. Uh, but the Senate uh, Majority Whip, Dick Durbin, uh, is opposed to that. He does not think there's enough time in the calendar to go through the reconciliation process to get the debt ceiling done. Uh, so that remains in serious doubt. And now it's being told, being, uh, uh, the Bipartisan Policy Center announced that the debt limit will uh, come up in the third quarter of next year. So the sense of urgency uh, is, is lessening, but there is still a sense of urgency for Democrats because they don't want the debt limit being held over them next year to extract spending cuts and also risk uh, default uh, and another credit downgrade you know, for the United States. Uh, yes, I I exactly. I mean, all of those people who, um, you, you, know, on, you know, forget what triggered uh, the Budget Control Act uh, in uh, the first place. So are you confident there's going to be a debt ceiling increase or not at this point? The only thing that makes me optimistic is that Pelosi wants it. And I have very, I have the utmost confidence in her. So if she wants it, she's going to figure out how to get it. And you think Chuck Schumer is going to go along with it as well on the Senate and bring, bring it? Yes. Get it done. And yes, do you I think do. you'll get any Republican votes? Yes, there are 14 Republican votes the last time in favor of raising the debt ceiling. We just need 10. So um, McConnell's opposed to it. So that is a problem. Um, but I am still hopeful. Is they, he really opposed to it or is he saying he's opposed to it? it I think both right now are the same. McConnell's won re-election as leader, so right. he doesn't need to extract anything. Kevin McCarthy is in a much different situation. Kevin's going to have to uh, do and say a lot of things between now and January 3rd to secure the support of far right wing folks to get him to 218 on the floor. McConnell's in a different position. Right. Um, let's uh, go to uh, the president wanting another thirty-seven uh, billion uh, for Ukraine. How is this uh, going to play out? Uh, right, because there is this sense uh, that on the one hand there's support, on the other hand, not as much support. Right. W walk us through how this uh, ends up playing out, because the United States and its allies and partners really are trying to step up to help equip uh, Ukraine for the fighting that's gonna happen, not just this winter, but obviously in the spring when fighting resumes. Yeah, so the $37 billion uh, request for the president was part of a larger request of $82 billion, which includes $35 billion in disaster aid, uh, which we've talked about previously for Florida, Kentucky, and Puerto Rico, and again, $10 billion in, in COVID aid. Uh, so you know that adds a tremendous number on top of the, um, omnibus and, uh, and be create, creates more trouble in getting a budget deal and also creating optics of a very large number. We were looking at a number about 1.6 before. With all this, we're looking at a number you know, almost at 1.7. Um, but I do believe that the Ukrainian aid will have enough bipartisan support that if there is an omnibus, we'll be on there and we'll go through at that number. I also believe that disaster aid will be at or close to that number, uh, but the COVID number will definitely not be on it. I mean, this is a fight that they continue to fight, and they continue to lose, and there's no way uh, the Republicans can support any additional COVID aid. And they continue to say that the White House needs to reprogram funds from the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan that was passed you know, uh, two years ago, almost two years ago, which still has all that money has not been spent. So it just, it's another complication to the omnibus, but I think this is one that they can overcome. Um, and what does it mean for, right? I mean, there has been a hope by some that there's also going to be a dramatic short-term injection of money to replenish depleted weapon stocks. What, what are the conversations? You know what I mean? I mean, if you're going to ask for $80 billion, 
um, you know, why don't you just add 20 billion to that, for example, to get stuff done that you need to get done also, right? I mean, hey, if you have a dump truck full of lemons um, that you're buying (laughs) buying on credit anyway, mm, what's another couple of bushels of lemons? Well, I think anything like that would be done in the defense appropriations bill. And uh, as you know, the Senate appropriators added 30 billion uh, to the president's top line. Uh, and the uh, Senate authorizers added 45 billion. And I think the House authorizers added 37 billion and the House appropriators added nothing. Uh, so when the NDAA does come to the floor, uh, if, if it does the week of the 5th, they are going to mark to the higher number of 45 billion. And I know the appropriators have always felt that that's their floor. And the Senate going to 30, uh, they know that the House is going to want half the money. So I still think the number at the end of the day is between 45 and 60. Uh, and, and, and they will be, you know, funding, you know, unfunded requirements, they'll be dealing with inflation, but they still, if the number is that big at the end, we'll still be looking for things to fund. And these, I think, will be on, the, on that list. Uh, we're running out of time. Two uh, quick items. Uh, other lame duck items worth discussing? Uh, well, I think that we're, they're going to spend time trying to get the uh, Electoral Count Act passed. Um, we do see some progress now on the same-sex marriage bill. Uh, over in the Senate, and that will have to be uh, passed and go over to the House. Um, and, you know, there also uh, is an effort uh, by Congressman uh, Cicilline, uh, who just induced uh, legislation, uh, which is really a last-ditch effort to block Trump from returning uh, to the presidency by invoking the 14th Amendment uh, that says anyone who engaged in insurrection or rebellion shall not hold public office. I wouldn't be surprised to see the House uh, spend some time on that, even though I, I don't see it passing in the Senate. Well, it, it would be very interesting. Speaking of uh, Florida man uh, making an announcement, uh, one of my hometown papers uh, reported that. Um, I don't know what's more terrifying uh, about this, right? You have to admire that, uh, you know, the how quickly the Post dropped Trump uh, when he was no longer a ticket uh, to power. So I'm not sure if I admire that or am terrified by the cravenness uh, of it and everybody else sort of having collective amnesia, Trump who, where uh, they were very comfortable with him and would have still been comfortable with him had he uh, ended up uh, winning. How, how does this p- play out? Uh, and, and does he have a ticket to re-election? Because folks are saying, you know, his heart's not in it. He was sort of doing it to do it. Um, he's still popular with Republicans, uh, period. Um, you know what? I mean, I mean, you know, everybody wants to see this as a repudiation, Michael. Democrats were winning these seats by handfuls. Some of them, the margins of victory are remarkably small, whether, you know, it's Katie Hobbs or, uh, you know, Raphael Warnock may win by a percentage point. That's true. But I think in the end, you know, a win's a win. And the Democrats were able to win these seats at a time where the president's approval rating hovers just above 40 percent. You know, and inflation is over 8 percent. There's concern about crime uh, and the Democrats were still able to win. Uh, but I think a, a lot of that was one, the Republicans were not offering solutions to those problems. And two, that the specter of Trump was looming in, in the background. And I think that, you know, a lot of Republicans looked at the right track, wrong track and, and misinterpreted the data where they looked at over 70 percent of Americans felt that the country was on the wrong track. They felt that meant they were going to win by big margins. Well, if you ask somebody that question, they may say, yes, America's on the wrong track because women are losing their right to choose. Uh, because there's gun violence in our schools, uh, because our democracy is under threat. Those people aren't voting for Republicans. You know, they're voting for Democrats. And, you know, I think we see a lot. Yes, you know, the president's popular among Republicans, but he's popular among less Republicans now than he was before. Uh, people want to be with a winner. And, you know, Fox News even uh, put out on Truth Social, uh, 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 I don't know if they call him a tweet or what they call him on Truth Social, but a message that referred to the president as a three-time loser. Uh, and, you know, that the uh, big GOP mega donors are looking for other people to support. Uh, and, you know, we've seen Mike Pence being interviewed, saying that they w- there will be better choices in the election. Uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, who's looked at as a possible uh, candidate in right. 24, even came out saying we need more seriousness. Uh, leaders that look forward, uh, not staring in the rearview mirror, c- claiming uh, to be a victim. Uh, that was pretty harsh, pretty serious. So I see uh, lots of cracks. And to me, that's very optimistic. And, and if you look at people who have already endorsed the president. Um, I just read earlier today, I mean, there's only, when I see three House members that have come out publicly and formally endorsed, that's Elise Stefanik, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Congressman Troy Nels. It's not an overwhelming group of folks. 
Uh, now, I think Lindsey Graham seems to have endorsed him by, the, by what he has been saying on Twitter. But uh, I think that this field remains uh, wide open, and that's a good thing. Michael, thanks very much, as always, for joining us uh, for this very fulsome uh, discussion on a very busy week in Washington. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. And joining us now for the roundtable portion of our conversation from uh, Dulles International Airport in sunny Virginia as we head up to the Halifax International Security Forum. Uh, as I've always said, one of the world's finest uh, gatherings of national security, uh, economic, diplomatic and security uh, minds uh, are uh, Dr. Kathleen McGinnis, uh, the director of the uh, Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, and Dr. Misha Oslin, uh, who is uh, a senior distinguished fellow at the Hoover Institution, uh, which is uh, of uh, the great uh, Stanford University. Uh, guys, uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Kathleen, uh, you just flew in, not to sound like an old Borscht Belt uh, shtick routine, but you uh, just flew in from Brussels, and boy, are your arms tied. <laughs> Uh, obviously, uh, a lot of uh, activity uh, over uh, the past couple of days and over this past week, uh, Russia bombarding, uh, continuing to bombard Ukrainian uh, infrastructure, especially in the wake of the, um, uh, their capitulation effectively at Kherson. Uh, the G20 put a powerful statement out uh, about the war, uh, which I'd like to get uh, Misha's take on uh, in a minute as well as, well as yours. Um, and then the two missiles uh, that landed inside Poland, it looks uh, like uh, the investigation is suggesting that they were Ukrainian air defense missiles to try to defend themselves against the barrage. What's, what, what are you picking up from the folks you were talking to in Brussels uh, about this incident, how the uh, alliance responded to it? There's been some criticism that uh, there have been fractures of, uh, of Vladimir Zelensky saying that, that he saw these as, as Russian missiles uh, that entered into NATO territory. The alliance has been careful about that. What did you pick up in terms of the messaging uh, and the continued support uh, for Ukraine from the alliance? Sure. I mean, I think my bottom line takeaway is that the system with NATO worked, um, that there wasn't a, you know, the, the alliance was able to take a step back, look at the facts, breathe some calm into the situation, and and determine over time that it wasn't actually a Russian missile into um, Polish territory, that it was a Ukrainian air defense missile. Now, I was on Wednesday night, you know, we, we were having this reception in Brussels at, at NATO headquarters, and all of a sudden there's this news happened. And of course, we're like, oh, God, um, th because the initial reports were that it was a Russian missile. And so all of the, the questions about Article 5, what do you do? How does that, that play out? You know, is, does, does this mean that, that we've got an expansion of the war? Um, so, so those were very much on the fore of everybody's minds. But overnight, leaders got together. The Polish uh, government talked to um, Jens Stoltenberg. They were able to breathe some calm to the situation, figure out like that we needed to conduct an investigation. You know, there was coordination with the White House. Um, and, and so, again, this is an amazing example of how the system works and why NATO is such an important institution for us. Rather than having a crazy crisis escalation, which we could have easily had, there was this time and space for the allies to breathe and come up with a, a deliberate course of action based on the facts. And so I think actually this is a, a pretty amazing success story for NATO. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, NATO Secretary General and, and NATO members have said that the fault and the blame in this uh, lies not with Ukraine, but actually with Russia uh, for its uh, illegal uh, campaign uh, against uh, Ukraine. Uh, from your standpoint, did you sense any cracks in the alliance uh, at all, right? I mean, a lot of discussion about whether or not the, this degree of support uh, is uh, going to be sustainable, the contact group making a lot more money available and a lot more resources, uh, seeing Swedes and Canada and a number of other nations line up, United States, another $37 billion. Did you get a sense that support will be flagging or that support is actually going to stay strong? You know, I got the sense that support is very strong, that there are concerns about the cold winter and how to maintain public support over the course of the winter. But overall, uh, the NATO allies are very much in the game. They understand that this fight in Ukraine is a fight that's happening on behalf of all of NATO and all Western nations. Um, and that, support, yes, yeah, support needs to continue as a result. 
Um, Misha, let me uh, bring you into the discussion. Obviously, the G20 uh, was in Bali. Uh, the president met with Xi Jinping uh, as well, uh, which was an important uh, meeting. And at the same time, the president met with a whole bunch of other uh, leaders in order to show up, shore up the coalition to better stand up to China. So there was kind of a duality of message there. Um, but just to tie in on what Kathleen was saying, I thought it was fascinating that the G20 made the statement that it did uh, about the Russian uh, invasion. Uh, and that the most Russia got out of it was to say, well, you know, we have our side of the story and we disagree with it. Uh, from your standpoint, you know, just, just your sense of what you thought that message coming out of the conference uh, was before we get to some more Asia-specific questions. Well, Vago, well, first of all, it's great to be on the annual pre-Thanksgiving show to join you, our, our once a year. Um, so from the G20 perspective, look, I, th I think um, given that it was in Bali, you know, everyone comes at it from their particular local security perspective, right? Uh, certainly for um, Indonesia, uh, the Southeast Asian nations, they were there. Japan, of course, plays a, plays a big role. Um, maintaining the idea that the liberal order, uh, as, as, you know, as we call it, is still viable when what they know is that Western nations, other than the United States, are extremely loath to actually get deeply involved in Asia because of the fear of, of, of China, both from a trade perspective, but also from uh, the, the military perspective. So from their point of view, all of this is a, uh, it's an attempt to, to backstop a system that they don't want to get to the point where you have to stress test it. They don't, they don't want to find out if it's going to hold together, if something actually really you know, bad happens in the South China Sea. Um, so I think the statement, obviously, for, you know, for those who are European nations, it's all focused on Europe. I think the Asian nations who are there uh, are focused on how do you send very clear messages that this global community, which, which was spurred into action, by the Ukrainians, by the fact that they fought back, that this global community still was going to hold the line against whatever outrageous Chinese moves, prov provocations, or demands there are, uh, and 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 you know they're hoping that they never get to the point where they have to they have to test it. Do you uh, do you think that the right messages are being sent? Right, I mean the international community said we're not you know dwell. They won't stand up to Russia. They haven't. That's what Vladimir Putin was counting on, and indeed I think that's what Xi Jinping had an expectation of, uh, even if he was lied to before the Beijing Olymp uh, Winter Olympics. And you know they did pledge limitless cooperation, and the Chinese are being somewhat less than limitless in the t kind of support they're giving. From your perspective are the right messages being sent to our Asian allies and partners because the White House has made the case, if we don't stand up here, we just pave the way for misbehavior uh, in Asia? It's a good question. I think that they, um, they know that the, the, the potential of a clash between China and not themselves, because none of them individually, of course, can stand up to China. And even collectively, they know they can't stand up to China, right? So it's the question of who comes in from the outside, primarily being the United States, uh, but potentially others, such as Australia, maybe maybe the UK, given their their new commitments in the region in AUKUS and the like. Um, but they know that even with those types of initiatives, whether it's Quad, whether it's AUKUS, um, it is such a completely different game to stand up to China or to oppose China than it is to Russia, which is you know a you know an economy that's that's focused solely on on. Petro, and it, it's, it is not have the global, the global reach that China does. It doesn't have the global influence or power that China does. So again, for all of them, their concern is how do you tie everyone in before a crisis happens so that extricating themselves from a crisis would be difficult. And we forget now, because it's been, what, uh, nine months or more, that the initial Western response to Russia's invasion was completely flat. We did nothing. We were, we were paralyzed into inaction for the first short period until we saw that the Ukrainians were fighting back. Once the Ukrainians fought back, we started all of these different mechanisms and processes and aid and support. That's what the Asians understand very well. They don't know how you can assure that the West is going to get involved if they're not able to put up a credible initial defense, which, to be honest, they know they can't. 
Um, uh, let me ask uh, Kathleen one question, and I want to come back to you on, on uh, the G20. From the uh, standpoint of spending, there's been a lot of focus on increased defense spending. All the alliance partners have been saying that. But then there is a little bit of a slowdown uh, or a sense of a little bit of slowdown. From your perspective, did you pick up what did you pick up in terms of the sort of broader, broader European defense spending arc? Because company, countries have made pledges, for example, even the United Kingdom, but budgetarily have had to dial back a little bit. You know, this is the, the perennial issue, right? Um, how, whether or not the, the European nations will ever meet the 2% gross domestic product um, target for defense spending. Um, it's my view that we really need to start rethinking how how we think about burden sharing. And, and first of all, we need to stop calling it burden sharing. Probably it's, it's risk sharing, right? Nations are doing all sorts of things that are non-military nature, but have a huge impact on their ability to um, be a part of the alliance and 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 advance our security objectives. Um, Lithuania divested its, um, or, or made sure that it was energy resilient against Russian um Russian resources that took investment that now um, is being seen. They, they, they did that. They're now doing a more defense investment because they've they've taken care of that goal. Um, so I think we need to start thinking about this question much more broadly. Yes, we need the two percent spending because, as uh, Misha just rightly pointed out, if nations aren't able to mount a credible defense, it's very hard for anybody else to come in and support them in the event of a crisis. So that absolutely has to occur. But I do think we need to start getting ourselves out of this nickel and diming, like, are they spending two percent or not? It's an input, not an output, right? Um, and what we need to understand is the 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 collective what nations are doing to advance our overall security objectives versus China, versus Russia, um, versus crisis response in, in the periphery, all those kinds of things. What are the economic trade-offs? What are the business trade-offs that countries are making by not choosing to allow China to invest in or to buy companies? Those are the kinds of questions that we need to start much more seriously grappling with and, and thinking about in terms of the overall security picture rather than just who's spending what on what widgets for defense. Uh, and I, I think, unfortunately, the conversation devolves to that all too often. Misha, did you have anything you wanted to add? I think it's a really important point that Kathleen just said, this, this idea of risk sharing, right? Not just burden sharing, because that's exactly how the Asians in particular look at it, right? There's enormous risk that has grown. I mean, the easy risk is North, North Korea, right? Which has been launching a flurry of ballistic missiles over Japanese territory, uh, but those can, those can land uh, obviously anywhere. Um, uh, the South China Sea, um, the increasing tempo uh, that has people concerned about the Taiwan Strait, um, all of these, all of these different uh, potential flashpoints, and some are actual flashpoints, and and that is that I think is is exactly the question that's being asked in the capitals, is is anyone willing to share our risk, and if not, then of course the immediate question is what do we do? But the broader question, the, the longer geopolitical question is, okay, then how do we figure out what, what looks what it looks like next when the assurances that we've had, which have not been tested of course, but the assurances that we've had for decades, no longer are operative and you can no longer hide behind the, the fiction that, sure, somebody's gonna ride in on a white horse. I don't think we're anywhere near to actually having assessed that really really gotten down into the into the weeds what we have of course are, are very effective alliances again untested so it's easy to be effective when you're untested right they're very effective alliances um but they are alliances uh that were were created decades ago for a very different geopolitical environment and we've just simply tried to graft them on to a new political environment or a new geopolitical environment so I, I just I, I want to reiterate that point, and I think that's a great conversation that needs to be uh, started to, to to be talked about on our end, but then talked about uh, among policy and decision makers. Which is, are you really willing? And we have to ask it honestly: Are we and they really willing to share risk? And and what does that risk look like? Um, let me uh, uh, pull on that uh, thread a little bit. Speaking of risk, uh, President Biden has always said that you can talk to your adversaries even if you disagree with them. A uh, very important meeting with Xi Jinping. Uh, it wasn't kumbaya, as the president said, but there was a frank airing uh, uh, of both sides. Uh, and even Xi Jinping seemed to strike a more conciliatory note. Honestly, if you're Xi Jinping and you're the one who's basically organizing the planet against you, it might be time to change your tone and sort of be the nicer guy. 
ultimately, what were the takeaways from you, uh, Misha, from uh, that meeting uh, that you think are concrete? Because it doesn't seem like there was a particular softening of a line, but they said, hey, we can work together on international development, on climate, and a couple of other issues. Um, concrete, nothing. Uh, do you talk? Sure. I mean, no, talk is both cheap, free, easy, and enjoyable for most people who have inhabited Washington as long as the president and others have. And it's fine. I, no reason not to do it. But I, I mean, honestly, look, you know, I think our, we, we've long passed the point where we need to delude ourselves about any type of real cooperation with China. And we keep hearing this over and over. If we cooperate on climate, it's because China wants cleaner air, as they should, because their, their air pollution kills hundreds of thousands prematurely a year. If they want cleaner water, same thing. I mean, that, that, that's fine. That has absolutely nothing to do with a Chinese view of supporting the broader system, of, of being what, you know, so many years ago now we used to call the hope of a responsible stakeholder. I think we're long, we're long past that. And, and it's fine to be hopeful. That's who we are as a people. I think it's a wonderful trait that we have, that if we talk a little bit more and we give a little bit more, we're going to get more out of it. Um, but we can no longer afford to delude ourselves that we're going to get any type of cooperation. And if you have watched what Xi Jinping has done, not only, of course, domestically with the 20th Party Congress, the third term, uh, the, the, the reshuffle of, of any type of political opposition out and all of his cronies in, but also uh, around the horn, as we would say, in terms of China's security interests, there's been not an iota of softening, and in fact, a great deal of hardening. And now he feels, I mean, we've all been using the phrase, he, you know, he ran the tables at the 20th Party Congress, whatever that exactly means. Not, not entirely. There are things he wanted that he still didn't get. I mean, in the, in the broad sense of is, is there still uh, factional opposition? Yes. But I mean, in terms of effective opposition, there's almost, there's almost really, uh, at, at least in terms of what we have to think about, very, very little. Uh, meaning what we have to think about in terms of how Chinese policy is formulated and how that affects our policy. Um, but uh, if anything, he is um, confident and emboldened, uh, while I think to your point, and you made a very important point, Vago, that he is organizing the world against him. And that is something that's not discussed at the, at the senior levels of Chinese leadership because it, it's verboten. It can't be discussed that he's actually made an enormous number of missteps that have uh, brought together a much more functional alliance. I don't want to call alliance, but you know what I'm saying, a more, much more functional set of, of networks and partnerships. Um, but they still haven't changed the trajectory materially. So it's one thing to say, yeah, we've got all of these groups that recognize the threat, that are working together more carefully, that at least hopefully are not deluding themselves about it. Um, it's another thing to say that that's having any appreciable impact. I would say right now it's not having any appreciable impact. Um, I want to go uh, to what you guys expect to hear over the coming days at Halifax because this is such a terrific uh, uh, conference uh, every year. But I have to ask you, you've written twice now, Misha, uh, about why the J uh, should be added to the AUKUS uh, deal. Uh, I'm one of the people that we should also be adding France to that, uh, as well as an important Pacific power, uh, an important ally uh, that does have a remarkably uh, good eye on the ball. A shout out to the new French strategy, right? Win before fighting, you know, win, win before it gets to that that point uh, in how you set the conditions, how do you continue to deter uh, ultimately. Um, make your case on why the Japanese should be included uh, in this uh, and even what we should be doing for uh, you know, even the, the four powers agreement, the quad agreement that we have, where a number of voices have said, hey, the French should probably be part of that as, as well. Talk to, talk, address both of these uh, cases from your standpoint, starting with why Japan should be part of uh, the AUKUS arrangement. Well, let me start with the French. Nice to see them adopting Sun Tzu, you know, <laughs> win, win before fighting. Uh, the French, I, I, I have heard they've made some um, conciliatory comments about AUKUS, but let's not forget AUKUS was created uh, by, by destroying the the. Australian-French yes. sub-deal, and so they were extremely opposed to the whole concept, uh, and, and the Brits were not all that eager to, to you know, uh, talk about how, how would we bring them in, even if that's possible. And there was a lot of opportunism there as well, right? I mean, the Biden administration had just seen the Afghanistan crumble, and so this was a great opportunity to hit a reset button uh, and, and also charge forward with, an, with another agreement to bring allies and partners uh, together. 
Well, I think, look, the more that we do and the more innovative initiatives we have, it's great. So it's not AUKUS versus QUAD or JAUKUS versus QUAD, but it's it's different groups with different different focuses. And I think the importance about AUKUS right now and why I'd like to see Japan in it and hence make it a JAUKUS is that AUKUS is explicitly focused on security issues. They are cooperating on, obviously, the, the core of it is building the nuclear subs for Australia, but they've expanded now to talk about hypersonic and counter-hypersonic technology, uh, quantum technology for uh, military communications, um, talking about, uh, obviously, cyber, cyber defense, uh, cyber offense. There's a whole host of things that, that uh that AUKUS is doing. And of course, with AUKUS, you have you have three allies, all of whom are in, uh, in five eyes together. If you add Japan to that, you bring not only incredible technological capability, a defense industrial base that uh, is larger uh, than certainly Australia's, probably larger overall than Britain's. I mean, Japanese maritime self-defense forces larger than the Royal Navy. Um, you you have another ally, and an ally, by the way, that has just signed essentially a security, it's not quite an alliance, but it's a security cooperation agreement with Australia. They've, they've signed two of those, uh, and they're signing with Britain as well. So uh, this is, you know, all of the parts have actually already flowed together, and that doesn't even mention the U.S.-Japan alliance. So I think it's it, it makes natural sense that they would be uh, coming in as a partner. The the flip side, which I do think is important to note, is that Quad is running up against certain limits. It's running up against limits uh, because of India, uh, because of India's support for Russia, because of the concerns India is not an ally of the other three in AUKUS and uh, in, in the Quad. And so there, it's, it has shied away a lot from security uh, and, and hardcore security concerns. Um, we can. We should continue to do quad. We should push quad. That's that's important. But I think if you brought Japan into AUKUS and made it JAUKUS, you're really talking about a significant new security partnership that is going to be talking about the cutting edge issues that we're all focused on. So I I, I just think that it's actually a natural evolution. I think before we know it, we're going to be in a quasi JAUKUS situation. So we should be looking at on ramps for Japan into JAUKUS. Uh, and do you, uh, but one of the challenges is how any of us satisfy the nuclear submarine requirement. The United States is going full throttle and it can't make enough submarines for its own use. Uh, the British are in a different place. The French make actually almost ideally suited nuclear submarines for this mission. Indeed, there was some discussion uh, in the very beginning of this that they should be nuclear submarines and the Australians didn't want to do that. The, commercial, the French have a commercial support model. Do you think ultimately there's a role for the French to play in this? given the extraordinarily, I mean, you know, the requirements for the Australians, it, I mean, puts you at the ragged edge of any conventional submarine technology. Yeah, I think, uh, plus you want the interoperability with Japanese submarines that are in the region, of course, American submarines. Um, I, I think, you know, with goodwill and uh, some innovative diplomacy uh, that is an outreach to Paris, it would be wonderful to see them as a part of it. Uh, you know, France has a, a, extensive interests, uh, territories in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, there's there's over a million and a half French passport holders in the Indo-Pacific. Obviously, they have territory in the South Pacific. So I think them being a part would be very important. Everybody's going to have to overcome the way that uh, and the Biden administration pushed AUKUS through without informing the French. They didn't even know about it. I mean, this this was not the way to maintain tight and close relations. Uh, it seems that Macron and Biden have overcome that. So I think I think we we should be pushing the only the only one. Um, I don't want to say it's a weak part, but the only thing that uh, would be a little bit out of alignment with the rest of JAUKUS is that Japan does not have the same security. Uh, cooperation agreements that it with France that it does with the others. So with the others, it's very natural already. Uh, but if if you can build on that, then that's great. Uh, and obviously, the president has said that that was clumsily handled, and the White House has communicated to France that well, we're going to work with you to try to uh, address this with our oldest ally, and we wouldn't be the United States if it wasn't for the French, uh, ultimately. Um, let me ask you both uh, really quickly, uh, because we're about to get ushered uh, onto the airplane, what you guys expect to hear, since uh, both of you guys are actually on the planning team for this or are actively uh, participating. Kathleen, let me start with you. What I am looking for, or what I will be looking for when I'm um, listening to the folks at Halifax, is going to be 
how are different leaders and how are different groups thinking about trade-offs and um, between the Asian Indo-Pacific theaters and European theaters? How do we balance these different requirements? Um, because on the one hand, especially with what's happening in Ukraine and, and the, the, the failures of the Russian military, there's a, a, a view that this allows a, an opportunity for Europe to step up and 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 therefore the United States can completely focus its attention on Indo-PACOM. But if you think about a Taiwan scenario, for example, the United States, we wouldn't do anything without at least coordinating through NATO first. Like, does that mean that NATO is going to be in Indo-PACOM? No. But does it mean that we need to keep this alliance vibrant? Yes. Also, you know, while the the Taiwan scenario has not happened yet. It could, and that's, that is deeply worrying for all of the reasons. Um, Russia's actively carving up its neighbors right now. So how are we balancing between these different requirements? Um, and can we, as allies and partners, walk and chew gum at the same time? and uh, get everybody on the same page, for example, on munitions and other stuff. We've heard Dr. Bill LaPlante uh, talk about how we've all got to pull together in, or, in order to uh, re replenish uh, depleted stocks. Uh, I would add one other thing, uh, just you know, speaking of AUKUS, uh, the White House uh, thought the Australians were the ones who were going to be uh, communicating and, and letting the French know, and obviously you know, that didn't happen very well. But let's not dwell on that. We've moved on. Um, uh, Misha, from your perspective, uh, you're part of the team that helps uh, intellectually organize the conference and actually, actually organize the conference. Uh, what, what, are you, what do you think the big messages this year are going to be when we get up there? Well, I think this year's going to be a lot on Ukraine. And I think, um, you know, Peter Van Prague, who's the president of Halifax, uh, always uh, works to get a very balanced program and you know we all try to try to help with that uh, but last year we had a lot of China it was really great we had uh, and you were at the dinner that that uh, I hosted with uh, uh, Indo-PACOM commander uh, Admiral Aquilino and we had a we had an incredible discussion uh, we had a lot of China last year and I think this year is really going to be about Ukraine that's the crisis du jour the crisis dawn of of uh, of what we have to face this year and probably next year you know, there really should be, I think, a discussion. It was a great point that Kathleen made about trade-offs. I think there really has to be a discussion about, and we have a new national security strategy now. We have a national defense strategy. We have the the nuclear, uh, the, the posture review has been come out. Um, can we really handle two crises? I mean, real crises, right? So Ukraine being one. What if... Uh, what, what people, some people call the Davidson window or the Davidson decade, China does move on Taiwan. I think it's less likely they would move directly on Taiwan, then you would have a clash over uh, some of the disputed islands that then would become a, uh, a cause de guerre throughout the region and, and, and China taking advantage of that, right? So are we really prepared for something that we initially see as very small and we can't we can't get too worried about spinning out of control, and before we know it, we're in a brand new big crisis. So that's the type of discussion that I think we we have to have. Um, I was I was at Syracuse uh, at the Maxwell School, and the war game was just that: Jinmen, Matsu. How does the world respond? And and basically ending up absorbing those. Uh, oh, and does that so uh, sound a deterrent signal to then protect the mainland, or does that become kind of an amuse-bouche uh, since you uh, decided to go down the French road there, Misha? Well, and also just to bring the conversation back to where we started. Um, are there lessons that we can learn from the, what just happened in NATO for de-escalating these kinds of crises, to, for, for taking a breath, making sure that, that we don't um, accidentally escalate these beyond, you know, beyond where they should be? Um, so I would hope that leaders are taking notes um, on, on how NATO handled it and thinking about how those might be applied in, in an Indo-PACOM context. Guys, uh, thanks very much. We're about to get ushered on the airplane. Really appreciate it with uh, both of you and looking forward to having you back on uh, again soon. And Misha, I apologize. I don't want this to be an annual thing, but we love having you on whenever you're able to join us. Love being on. <laughs> Kathleen, thank you. Um, thank you so much, even though my arms are tired. She's here all week. Try the chicken. Thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate it. <laughs>